The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space celebrating tenure through the community. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. everyone and welcome back to the Trinity Long Room Hub online. Uh, I'm Eve Patton, I'm director of the Trinity Long Room Hub and this is our first faculty in focus session of this semester. Those of you who are regulars know we are used to having fellow in focus interviews and conversations in the course of the academic year but of course without our usual cohort of visiting fellows we've turned to our wonderful faculty at home so this is a, a domestic conversation. Um, and I'm going to be talking today to uh, my wonderful colleague from the School of English, Dr. Claire Clark. Uh, Claire has been in the School of English since 2014, and she's going to tell us a little bit more over the course of this lunchtime about her background as an academic, about her route to Trinity, uh, but also about her latest publication. And one of the things we want to do today is to celebrate her absolutely terrific uh, new book, which is British Detective Fiction, The Successors of Sherlock Holmes, just, uh, just published uh, from Palgrave in Clive Bloom's excellent series. Um, now, this isn't Claire's first book, but uh, we'll be talking about her other publications and projects along with it. Uh, but as the topic uh, is Sherlock Holmes, and we know that, that uh, he is a figure who has a huge following out there, we thought that as a special treat for you, uh, we'd start off before I turn to Claire and bring in a, a guest reader, Professor Daryl Jones, also from the School of English uh, and uh, another expert in this field. And uh, for you lucky listeners, Daryl is actually going to read for us a passage from Arthur Conan Doyle uh, and tell us a little bit about it. So I'm gonna hand over to you, Daryl, now uh, to, uh, to give us a, a little excerpt. Hello everybody, uh, my name is Daryl Jones from the, uh, from the School of English uh, and um, I, I um, am the editor of um, Arthur Conan Doyle's Gothic Tales um, for Oxford University Press and the, the general editor of the forthcoming um, uh, new Oxford Sherlock Holmes. Um, and in that light I've been asked to read uh, some Holmes. So uh, this is an excerpt, a very famous excerpt from uh, uh, The Adventure of the Final Problem, uh, uh, a story which was first published in the Strand magazine in December 1893, and then was the last of the uh, stories uh, collected in the volume, The Memoirs of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, this is one of the most famous of all Holmes stories um, uh, because it is the one in which we first meet Professor Moriarty. It is also, this is not giving the game away, uh, the, 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 the story in, in which um, Arthur Conan Doyle managed to kill off uh, Sherlock Holmes, uh, though not for long. Um, uh, uh, he stayed dead for, for less than a decade uh, before he was resurrected for the Hound of the Baskervilles. Uh, so this is a celebrated passage uh, for, from the final problem. Uh, Bear with me while I uh, get properly dressed for this. 
You've probably never heard of Professor Moriarty, said he. Never. Aye, there's the genius and the wonder of the thing, he cried. The man pervades London and no one has heard of him. That's what puts him on a pinnacle in the records of crime. I tell you, Watson, in all seriousness, that if I could beat that man, if I could free society of him, I would feel that my own career had reached its summit and I should be prepared to turn to some more placid line in life. Between ourselves, the recent cases in which I've been of assistance to the Royal Family of Scandinavia and to the French Republic have left me in such a position that I could continue to live in the quiet fashion which is most congenial to me and to concentrate my attention upon my chemical researches. But I could not rest, Watson. I could not sit quiet in my chair if I thought that such a man as Professor Moriarty were walking the streets of London unchallenged. What has he done then? His career has been an extraordinary man. He's a man of good birth and excellent education, endowed by nature with a phenomenal mathematical faculty. And at the age of 21, he wrote a treatise upon the binomial theorem, which has had a, a European vogue. On the strength of it, he won the chair, the mathematical chair at one of our smaller universities and had to all appearances a most brilliant career before him but the man had hereditary tendencies of the most diabolical kind. A criminal strain ran in the blood, which instead of being modified was increased and rendered infinitely more dangerous by his extraordinary mental powers. Dark rumors gathered round him in the university town and eventually he was compelled to resign his chair and come down to London where he set up as an army coach. So much is known to the world, but what I'm telling you now is what I have myself discovered. As you were aware, Watson, there is no one who knows the higher criminal world in London so well as I do. For years past, I've continually been conscious of some power behind the malefactor, some deep organizing power, which forever stands in the way of the law and throws its shield over the wrongdoer. Again and again, in cases of the most varying sorts, forgery cases, robberies, murders, I have felt the presence of this force and I've deduced its action in many of those undiscovered crimes in which I have not been personally consulted. For years, I have endeavored to break through the veil which shrouded it and for the last, and the last, at last the time came when I seized my thread and followed it till it led me after a thousand cunning windings to ex-Professor Moriarty of mathematical celebrity. He is the Napoleon of crime, Watson. He is the organizer of half that is evil and of nearly all that is undetected in this great city. He is a genius, a philosopher, an abstract thinker. He has a brain of the first order. He sits motionless like a spider in the center of its web. But that web has a thousand radiations and he knows well every quiver of each of them. He does little himself, he only plans, but his agents are numerous and splendidly organized. If there is a crime to be done, a paper to be abstracted, we will say, a house to be rifled, a man to be removed, the word is passed to the professor, the matter is organized and carried out, the agent may be caught. In that case, money is found to, for bail or for his defense, but the central power which uses the agent is never caught, never so much as suspected. This was the organization which I deduced, Watson, and which I devoted my whole energy to exposing and breaking up. 
but the professor was fenced round with safeguards so cunningly devised that do what I would, it seemed impossible to get evidence which would convict in a court of law. You know my powers, my dear Watson. And yet at the end of three months, I was forced to confess that at last I had met an antagonist who was my intellectual equal. My horror at his crimes was lost in my admiration at his skill. But at last he made a trip, only a little, little trip but it was more than he could afford when I was so close upon him. I had my chance. And starting from that point, I have woven my net around him until now all is ready to close. In three days, that is to say on Monday next, matters will be ripe and the professor with all the principal members of his gang will be in the hands of the police. Then will come the greatest criminal trial of the century, the clearing up of over 40 mysteries and the rope for all of them. But if we move at all prematurely, you understand, they may slip out of our hands at the last moment. Now, if I could have done this without the knowledge of Professor Moriarty, all would have been well, but he was too wily for that. He saw every step which I took to draw my toils around him. Again and again, he strove to break away, but I as often headed him off. I tell you, my friend, that if a detailed account of that silent contest could be written, it would take its place as the most brilliant bit of thrust and parry work in the history of detection. Never have I risen to such a height and never have I been so hard pressed by an opponent. He cut deep and yet I just undercut him. This morning, the last steps were taken and three days only were wanted to complete the business. I was sitting in my room thinking the matter over when the door opened and Professor Moriarty stood before me. My nerves are fairly proof, Watson, but I must confess to a start when I saw the very man who had been so much in my thoughts standing there on my threshold. Well, thank you very much, Daryl. Powerfully read. Uh, please stick around in case a question comes in on fin de siècle fashion uh, and the deerstalker as icon. Um, but, uh, but thank you very much for that. And a reminder, of course, not only the story of Holmes, but the story of Moriarty and what he symbolizes and what he means uh, has to be considered when we, we think about this topic. Uh, and, and all of this is something that, that is very much the territory of Claire's book that we're going to be talking about. Um, but Claire, let me let me welcome you again and bring you in at this point. Uh, people will be able to put questions to you in the chat function that uh, Francesca has opened, and I'd welcome everyone to put in questions or comments about Claire's work as we go through. And we'll come to these when we've had a bit of a conversation, Claire, about your route to this publication. Because um, if I can take you back to I suppose the stage that a lot of uh, the ECRs listening might be at at the moment, which is doing a doctorate, how did you get to this topic? Is this something that's been with you since postgraduate days? Um, I thank you, first of all. Thank you, Daryl, and thank you, Eve. Um, so I have always been a fan of crime fiction. Um, this is something I think that maybe like a lot of us, I grew up watching Poirot on a Sunday evening along with my mom and uh, Charlie Chan with my grandparents and reading the books as well. So I've always was a fan of crime fiction and uh, I had a small break between my undergraduate and my master's degree of seven years. And 
in that period of time, crime fiction had become suddenly a legitimate area of study for uh, academics in a way that it really wasn't when I was doing my undergraduate degree in the late 90s. So uh, when I was at Queen's doing my master's, I was able to focus quite a lot on crime fiction and I initially started working on uh, 20th century American crime fiction, uh, the work of James Elroy. And uh, I took a module uh, with Caroline Sumter at Queen's on the 1890s and I fell in love with the 1890s and I kind of mashed together my love of crime fiction and the 1890s and started to write about Sherlock and the Gothic and all of those kind of wonderful things that, that happened in the 1890s literature. Um, which then led me on to thinking that I could do a PhD, which would be something to do with space and the city in Sherlock Holmes, but which eventually changed a little bit to be uh, a project called The Shadows of Sherlock, uh, which actually the passage from Daryl, I think, encapsulates really well. The idea that Sherlock is impressed by criminality in a way that he's not by mediocre people. Um, so he admires Moriarty as much as he fears him and worries about him. And I started to look around the Sherlock Holmes stories at similar stories from that period and found that actually there were quite a lot of stories where there was this kind of celebration of the criminal, even though it was ostensibly detective fiction. Um, and that's how my, my PhD topic came into focus. Um, but then after that was over, I still had quite a lot of material left over. And that eventually became the second book, which is not so much focused on those kind of criminal elements, but more just on what happens after Sherlock has his confrontation with Moriarty and falls off the side of a waterfall and dies. And I wanted to see what happened in detective fiction during those years, uh, as Daryl said, seven years or so where Sherlock was dead, quite a lot of people kind of um, tried to fill that void. And so that's the subject really of the second book. And, and just in that, in that relationship between first and second book, there are some quite interesting things that you've already brought out because one of the things that, you know, as an academic supervisor, uh, we might often say to, uh, to students, PhD students is, you know, nothing is ever wasted. All of that extraneous material that you can't squeeze in or isn't quite germane to the topic, put it away in a bag or a folder and, and you know, it'll flourish in some other environment. So it's interesting to hear that because uh, um, I want to talk a little bit about the segue from the first book to the second. But the first book was um, very much the based, I think, on your PhD and the first book, um, uh, was late Victorian detective fiction in the shadows of Sherlock. Uh, there it is, our visual aid. Uh, it was the <laughs> HRF Reading Prize in 2015, which is great. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how much it meant to you to find the right publisher for that book, to find it the right home. Because as you say, you're working in a, the kind of acad academic material that had very swiftly gained legitimacy. And this is perhaps something we can come back to. Uh, but it got that legitimacy partly because of quite visionary publishing houses who were willing to to take on this kind of material 
Uh, and, and can you tell us a little bit about your relationship with, with Palgrave in particular? Sure, absolutely. So um, when I had my PhD viva, my, um, my external examiner was Professor Lee Horsley, so, who people would know if you, if you work on crime fiction. And she suggested it was pretty much ready for publication, but I would need to add another couple of chapters. So um, at that stage, I went, I think I went directly to Palgrave. They were my first choice because I knew they had the crime files series edited by Clive essentially I thought that they were the top publisher that I would go to um and I had kind of this idea that I would start at the top with my first choice and then work my way down if I was rejected so I went to Palgrave um and happily I got a you know a, a book contract within about eight weeks it's kind of like a fairy tale academic dream um so I was very very lucky in that way I was I sent them a sample chapter and a a synopsis and I had decided I would add two extra cha chapters as Lee Horsley had suggested and they said yes so um it was it was inevitable I think that I would go back to them for my second book because um I had had a, such a good relationship with them they had you know they had been very quick and um very supportive and obviously the book had won the first book had won the prize and um everything had gone well so I I wanted to go back to them I think I'll probably go somewhere else for the next project but in terms of starting out I felt like they had the the kind of right mixture of um academic seriousness but also a desire to kind of communicate with a wider public, which is something that Clive Bloom is very interested in, is not having very kind of opaque writing that's not accessible to people outside of the academy. And that's something that I would, you know, and this is something that I think is a good idea as well. So it was a it was a good marriage, I think, um, for both exactly. of the books. Exactly. And also, of course, you know, it's a publisher that's let you put illustrations in. Yeah. Which isn't it for a topic like this? And and the cover for the second book with the uh, the illustration, the Sydney Paget illustration of of Holmes and Moriarty tussling on the uh, the cliffs above the Reichenbach Falls, you know, really sets the tone for the book. And, and we're going to talk a little bit about how Sherlock Holmes was published if we get time. Uh, but that's very much part of it, isn't it? That visual aspect. Claire, you uh, were awarded an IRC postdoc um, and. Uh, you, you stayed with this topic, obviously, and, and uh, explored it a little bit more. Um, and you also made a move to Trinity uh, around about this time. And I wanted to ask you, because this is, uh, I suppose, an extension of the question about a sympathetic publishing environment, how much it meant to you to have a, a fellowship in Trinity of colleagues like Daryl, like Bernice Murphy, who were also interested in popular literature. And I'm, I'm putting popular literature in the bunny ears because I want to come back to that term yeah. and, get, and whether it's still working for us. But at the time that you know you began to work with uh, the Trinity academics who'd already, I suppose, marked out this territory as a real speciality of, of Trinity's School of English. Um, how much did that mean to you to have that kind of environment to work in? Because other places, of course, you could have been quite isolated in a yeah. very specialist niche or genre uh, area such as this. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, I, you know, yeah. One of the things you have to do after your PhD is be strategic about finding a place that's right for you and kind of putting your energies into trying to get there in some way or get some kind of an association with that. So when I decided to go for the IRC postdoc, that was to turn the PhD into a book. And Trinity was the obvious place to do that, not only because it was the top university on the island, but because, as you say, it had this network of scholars who were really established fiction, uh, features of, you know, popular fiction, um, popular fiction studies. And when I first approached Daryl, who was head of school at the time and said, I would like to do an IRC postdoc, um, you know, which is really just to ask him to provide me a letter of reference. He was so enthusiastic and so welcoming. And I immediately felt, you know, that, that this would be the right place for me. And um, I don't want to tell you about the, <laughs> the, the kind of months between putting in my application and uh, finding out that I'd actually got a postdoc at Trinity. I think I never walked as much in my life. I used to go for very long, very fast walks every night where I would just spend the whole time thinking, would be really good to get to Trinity and I would love it and but what if it doesn't happen and this kind of thing would go in over and over in my mind so um I did get there and I, as you say uh Jarlath Colleen was my um mentor uh for the project and anyone who knows Jarlath knows that he is extremely rigorous <laughs> with his um, editorial comments so I think he was a brilliant sort of editor to have for that project because he would kind of push me in different directions and ask me things about the project that I hadn't necessarily considered um, but also just to have that environment where popular fiction was was thought of as a legitimate area of study and not just a legitimate but actually something to be very proud of um, um, where there was a master's degree in popular literature it was so different really than anywhere else and um, when I eventually um, interviewed for my job um, at Trinity in 2014 I, I said that there was genuinely no department in the world that I would rather work in and I, I wasn't lying I actually meant that you know I, I still feel that to this day that this is the best place for me and my work and I'm so happy that I landed here. You're muted Eve. <laughs> Lots of people will be listening who uh, also owe their souls uh, to the IRC as well and that, yeah. that support you know which so many uh, people would not be completing PhDs or postdocs without so uh, we'd factor that in too. So you're at Trinity you're obviously uh, teaching uh, quite a heavy teaching load but but gaining in that sense of building up your own research students and your own uh, research community if you like which I know has been uh, a big aspect of what you do um, and then the second book becomes uh, I suppose a, a, a dream in your mind but uh, as we've said you've got material left over from the first one but did you have any anxiety about pursuing a similar a very similar area um, did you did that worry you at all? Become pigeonholed and become limited or seen as limited? Um, my plan was always that I would write the second book again in a very strategic way to write a second book. 
um, I have I have an idea for what I thought would be my second book, which is a bit different, which is about memoirs of mid-century detectives who published their memoirs um, in newspapers. And I still think I'll do that uh, probably within the next few years. But I felt that I had this material left over. There was enough of a difference with the first book where I could take a slightly different angle, the angle of looking at what happened after Sherlock died and put that together in a book that I could get together fairly quickly. Because I think like in those early early years after you've completed your PhD and your postdoc and you're waiting to get a permanent job, you have to be strategic. You have to be thinking, what can I do to make myself the most attractive person to a place that might want to employ me? And research is so much a part of that. I mean, everybody will have experience teaching and so on, but I felt like I needed to get that second book. Um, because I had this material, I, I was determined I was going to use it basically. So that's that's the, the honest answer to that. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Well, look, it's, it's all put to brilliant effect and uh, it's been such a pleasure reading the book. Um, but I just want to give people a little flavour of it because uh, this, is, um, this is your own description from the introduction of exactly what you're covering. And I think it's great. Most of these stories uh, exist on the borderline of genre. They overlap with a colonial adventure tale, the ghost story, gothic fiction and the slum novel. They showcase various incarnations of the figure of the detective working with various degrees of success or failure. In the pages of this study, readers will find all sorts of fascinating late Victorian detectives, professional, amateur, male, female, old, young. There's a gypsy pawn shop worker, a forensic scientist, a new woman detective, a British aristocrat, a ghost hunter and an East End criminal and so on and so on. It's, it's a tremendously rich set of players. And, and as Daryl mentioned at the beginning, there is this gap between the death of Sherlock Holmes and then his resurrection by Conan Doyle that you seized as an opportunity. Uh, but you draw out the most extraordinary people. One of the things that struck me immediately about the, the book is of course, it allows you to work on women writers who've been either forgotten or disguised by the fact that they were using uh, pseudonyms or they were using initials, LT Mead, for example. We've also got the, the Pritchards, the mother and son team. Yeah. Did it, did, was it a surprise to you to see that this uh, gender balance was, was in play in this period? I think that's one of the things when you look at the 1890s and the kind of expansion of the marketplace, the literary marketplace at that time, there all of a sudden becomes an opportunity for women writers to become involved in a way that they hadn't necessarily been to that extent before. So you get someone like L.T. Mead, for instance, who is... Uh, an Irish emigrant in, in London. She's broke, she's trying to support her mother and she needs to write to make an income. And she looks at the, the periodicals that are around at the time in the magazines and she says, what are the popular genres? Okay, I'm going to write those. Um, so you see this, the, the way in which women can kind of make a space for themselves in the literary marketplace of the 1890s out of necessity, but then become one of the key players. So Mead happened then to become the person after Conan Doyle, who was most published in the Strand magazine. So, she, you know, 
and she blended things from from the newspapers and from other people's stories and you know she kind of mashed them all together into these stories which were sometimes ridiculous and sometimes brilliant and sometimes a combination of both um and she did a you know fantastically well and there were a number of other women writers who were doing that and the, you know I discovered one just as I was finishing the book actually who was publishing and I think she was the first female writer to write a female detective but nobody has written anything about her yet and it's going to be a matter of getting to archives and trying to track down where those stories were and what the chronology was before I can publish something about that but hopefully that will be an article at some point or other. There you go. Again, you see nothing is ever wasted <laughs> in this field. Um, nope. it's, it's an extraordinary, um, it's an extraordinary rich theme of popular writing and commercial writing, but you're also, as you point out in the book, uh, looking at a set of stories that are always addressing quite serious topics. Uh, the Irish question, the uh, new woman question, for example, the condition of um, British cities, the slum dwellers and so on. So even though you get all the, the, the nice uh, flavoursome aspects of late Victorian or late 19th century writing, I think you talk about uh, the gaslight and the gentlemen's clubs, you're also getting these serious issues filtered through commercial writing in this period. And I wonder if you, um, if you found that intriguing or, or, or how you dealt with that, because you obviously didn't want to write a political study as such. Yeah, um, to me that's one of the most interesting things about the crime fiction of this period and is the way that it does actually deal with social and political and historical events of the time and I think one of the reasons for that is that the writers of popular fiction who are often writing very quickly and maybe without a huge amount of attention uh, and time devoted to their writing, they tend to plunder the newspapers for their storylines, much as writers of popular fiction would do today to some extent. Um, and because of that, then you get this interesting engagement with political issues like the new woman, like the Irish terrorism at, at the time and so on. Um, and for me then, you know, picking through the stories and seeing these little snippets of political um, information or, you know, references to contemporary stories would lead me down a rabbit hole of going to newspaper archives and trying to, to learn more about that and trying to kind of weave the two together. So that's the kind of, that's the fun part of research for me is making those connections. Exactly. And uh for all of us, I suppose, you know, you suddenly have that felicitous moment of seeing those connections. And we'll maybe come back to the way in which you've had to use uh, newspapers and, and digitized sources in a minute. But I want to just, with a few comments coming in from people who are tuned in, uh, Sharona Pearl, who uh, says, thanks, Claire. Did you end up doing any public facing writing around this work, given your interest in engaging a broader audience? So obviously here in the hub, we, we go on about rightly about impact, but with Sherlock Holmes and his company of other similar detective uh, figures, there's always going to be a public interest. So did you manage to turn this outwards from an academic environment to a broader public in any way? Or would you like to? I'm not sure that I've done that yet, although I definitely like to. I mean, I think that 
you know, in the 1970s, there was a, a series called The Rivals of Sherlock Holmes, which was kind of, you know, Sherlock era detectives. And I think, you know, BBC Four could absolutely do something like that. Again, I think there would be interest in it because of the huge interest there's been in Sherlock. And, uh, you know, obviously they, I'm, I'm available to be a consultant for that as, you know, anytime they want me. But um, I, <laughs> I'm apart from, you know, pieces in the Irish Times and so on, I try and keep my profile relatively high with do, doing bits and pieces like that. Whenever something kind of in the crime world strikes me, I tend to, you know, pitch something to them. So, uh, recently I did a piece on Enola Holmes for the Irish Independent. I reviewed that for them and I was able to kind of talk about some of these things that I talk about in my book as well. So I, I, I try to just, you know, see how to let it happen kind of, kind of organically in that way. Um, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, that's I, the way it's worked for me. That counts as public engagement as well, but um I think the, the kind of interest that there is in the detective fiction format says something about our society uh, and what we need from this kind of publication. And we should maybe reflect on that a bit. But also the fact that this, this interest in the detective figure has stayed with us and continued you know, into the 20th century um, uh, to the great high point of the detective novel. There were clubs formed, even for the writers. I think you talk about the detection club that uh, people like Agatha Christie were, were members of in 1930, it must have been. This interest in the detective figure has persisted. And uh, there's a, another question that's come in from Barry McRae. Hi, Barry, um, who touches on this. And Barry says, one of the intriguing things about literary detectives, Holmes, his predecessor, Dupin, and their various descendants, Miss Marple, Case, Garpetta, and so on, is that they're almost always single or at least estranged in some way from family life, as though being a detective was a kind of priesthood. Is this something you notice in Holmes's rivals and substitutes? A really interesting question there. This kind of psychological profiling of the detective figure hasn't mm -hmm. gone away. It, it persisted after Holmes, and presumably you, you did track some of the same attributes in his contemporaries yeah that's an absolutely fantastic question it's a really good observation actually uh, absolutely I mean I think that the the detective must be a loner um, in order to devote themselves wholeheartedly to the things that they're investigating they mustn't have any emotional ties to family or um, anybody else really um, so that they you know the crime becomes kind of the all-encompassing for them um it is interesting though that more recent um scandinavian detective fiction written by women has now started to involve women with families being detectives or maybe journalists who are investigating crimes and talking about their family life at the same time so you have these women who are investigators but they're also juggling that with the demands of motherhood which I think is a very kind of Scandinavian thing to you know to to bring those things together and to bring that idea to the fore so there's some interesting work happening there I of course can't remember any of the names of the people at this precise moment um but yeah that the, there's those things are beginning to change so um yeah that I think that's really interesting as well 
Absolutely. And, and thanks, Barry, for that question. And uh, we're getting all kinds we're of support. We're getting more now. of a sense of you. All kinds of support now for your public engagement, Claire. Sorry, my Wi-Fi is dropping. Um, but uh, <laughs> Fanula Delan, hi, Fanula, uh, has pointed out she's really enjoys your contribution to podcasts. And I think Aoife has posted your, is it your Irish independent uh um, yeah. mm -hmm. So uh, proof that you are in fact having huge public <laughs> impact, Claire. Um, so you can uh, you can be pleased with that. Uh, we'll we'll go to more questions in a minute, but I wanted to come back to um, well a couple of things I, I I suppose I was interested in myself, and one is this this question of the readership because obviously people are looking for something in the detection format, and. At the fantasy act at the end of the 19th century, perhaps they were looking for something to do with the idea that somebody would take charge and resolve uh, problems that they were witness to or were experiencing. The idea that, uh, where, you know, where government fight might fail, there was still a sense that individuals could solve local problems. Right. Is that why people are still reading detective stories? Or is that why the 20th century saw this become such a, a, a constant formula? I think to some extent, absolutely. Um, Franco Moretti has made the really interesting and correct observation that Sherlock Holmes goes to the East End once in the whole of his 56 stories at the time when the Jack the Ripper murders were unsolved. So we have this idea of Sherlock being at once a kind of super detective, a mythic hero, but at the same time, somebody who doesn't really go near the realities of late Victorian crime. So the crime then becomes an adventure and something that can be easily solved and reassuring to the public. So crime is an aberration, a kind of one-off event in these type of stories. And once the person involved is caught and dispatched in some way, the status quo uh, returns and there's a sense of kind of reassurance that goes along with that and I think that that's something that endures now I also happen to like the type of detective stories where there's not so such a simple answer and things are not neatly resolved and I think there's room for both of those types of things now so there's a big resurgence at the moment in crime writing in the locked room mystery which Agatha Christie was famous for and Doyle wrote a couple of them as well um and I think that's all about the need for kind of saying the crime or the criminal is, is an aberrant figure and they can be caught and they can be, you know, got rid of and then things return to normal. And I think in times of crisis, like now, there's something incredibly comforting about that. And is that the same transatlantically? Because you started with the American version of this genre. And obviously, you know, we're, we're aware of uh, the hard-boiled American detective figure, particularly of the 20s and 30s, but um, is that serving a different purpose or do you see no difference between an American tradition and a British tradition? Of, or no. is that too general? Is that question generalizing too much? No, no, no. Uh, no, they absolutely split off in different directions um, in the, at the, the start of the 20th century. And we get this division, like you say, between the British um, cozy or golden age mystery you know exemplified by Agatha Christie and then the the, the American hard-boiled tradition which is much more um, you know because it comes out through the pulp magazines is much more aimed at a male working class audience so it's it has those same sort of impulses towards resolution I think 
but there's a, a much greater sense of the world being essentially chaotic um, and the female being a frightening figure. So you get the, the, the femme fatale that comes up in American crime fiction at the time. I think it's very much about male anxieties to do with the workplace post-World War and also uh, the 19th Amendment, women being granted the vote. All of those things come out in the American fiction, uh, crime fiction at that time in a way that they don't in British crime fiction. It, it needs a book, obviously. Um, <laughs> lots of questions coming in now. Antonio Hart. Hi, Antonio. Um, who did have a great piece in uh, a magazine over the weekend. I must uh, follow up with you on that. Kai Claire, I'm interested to hear your view of the portrayal of women in the Sherlock Holmes stories and how this differs between the stories and television and cinema adaptations. And we've touched on women, Claire, as, as authors of the community of, of books and, and stories that you've looked at in uh, the, um, the period of Holmes's death, that blank space. Um, but what about how they appear in the text and how that has been altered for yeah, That's another great question, actually. Um, I always read the Sherlock Holmes stories with my students, obviously, and I think they're quite surprised at the differences between the original stories and the kind of cultural idea of Holmes and also the cultural idea of Irene Adler, who appears in the first short story that Holmes, or the Doyle story writes for The Strand. So obviously, Irene Adler beats Sherlock in this story, which is an interesting thing to happen in the very first short story for The Strand. But also you get the, um, the attitude towards women that comes out throughout the stories, which is, can be kind of paternalistic and a little bit misogynistic, where Holmes says, for instance, you know, if a woman's house is on fire and she's married, the first thing she's going to, to um, grab for is her baby. And if she's not married, she's going to grab for her jewellery box. So you get those, <laughs> these kind of, um, I don't know, um, these ideas about women, shall we say, that are put forward that are not particularly flattering. And I don't think the women in the Sherlock Holmes stories actually have much agency. Um, and it's interesting to see that modern adaptations really try to deal with that by perhaps making Irene Adler a love interest or giving her a lot more time on screen than, than she did have in the books themselves. So um, I, I don't know how I feel about that, to be honest. Uh, I'm not sure what my feelings are. I did, I have to say, though, really like Enola Holmes, I thought that was an interesting way of kind of changing up the gender dynamics in relationship to Sherlock that I haven't seen done elsewhere. I don't particularly like the BBC Sherlock one, so I think the, the um, yeah, it becomes almost too kind of cartoonish and superhero-ish for me. Well, that's the end of your BBC commission, Claire, I'm afraid. Those hopes are dashed now. But, uh... <laughs> all those BBC people that are listening, damn they're it. They're all listening, I'm sure they're all listening. <laughs> Let me put you on the spot and don't worry about Daryl lurking in the background on this, but but have you got a favorite Holmes? I mean, obviously we've got the, the Basil Rathbones and we've got right up to Robert Downey Jr.'s. Uh, where's your secret love? Oh, Jeremy Brett, always oh. from the from the, the 1980s watching those adaptations on, I think it was a Sunday afternoon or a Sunday evening. Yeah, always Jeremy Brett for me. I'm a purist. <laughs> essentially <laughs> i just want to go back uh, with, with uh, time for a couple more questions but i just want to go back to 
what you mentioned earlier about uh, the places of the city that Holmes goes and doesn't go. And when we look at Moretti's reading of, of London, um, you get quite a different picture perhaps of, of, from what we expected. And this is something that I know you have an interest in. You have, a, I think you're interested in a new project, which is about digital and literary mapping uh, of the areas of London that are the scenery or the backdrop for the detective fiction that you've been looking at. Now, this is um, a very interesting new venture, and I know a lot of people uh, who work in the hub um, have some interest in, in mapping of some form in mm. their own research. Can you tell us a little bit about this new project and how it's going to work? Sure. Um, so I was lucky enough to be awarded a Provost Project Award for this, which means that um, I was able to recruit a PhD student for a four-year project fully funded on Sherlock. She's going to be writing about Sherlock and dark tourism, which promises to be a fantastic project. And she's also going to be my research assistant for this mapping project that I've been thinking about for a while. Uh, really off the back of that Moretti comment about Sherlock not going to the East End. Um, again, this is something that I've I've talked about with students in class and we we end up having you know quite heated debates about this because students simply won't believe that he doesn't go to the east end and we have to bring out maps and look at things and and all this kind of business so i thought it would be really interesting to try and plot where sherlock does actually go over the course of the 56 stories um, and i know people have done that i think on google maps so there's you know a few people have done that type of thing but what I wanted to do was try and look at it in terms of contemporary Victorian locations. So using something like the Booth Poverty Map to look at what the social class of the places that he visited was. And also then to try and provide more information on the types of places that he visits. So I've started to do a little bit of work on this. Um, it might be a digital map. It might actually end up being another book. Um, I got a brilliant book a few weeks ago called Murder Maps by Drew Gray. It was published by Thames and Hudson. We also published a lovely edition of the Booth Poverty Maps recently. And it got me thinking that this could make a really lovely book <laughs> if Thames and Hudson were to go for it. So if they're listening, um, yes, I would like you to publish my next book, please. Um, um, obviously, we could have lots of lovely illustrations of the places that he visited from the time and so on and get a sense of, was he actually just confined to the west end of the city? Um, the places where crime wouldn't really have happened. Um, I'll look at the, um, the Booth poverty maps also have the police notebooks from the time and I'll look at courts of assize and things like that to try and get a sense of how much crime was actually happening in the west end. So. I'm excited about that. It hasn't really started yet because of the pandemic kind of got in the way, but yeah. um, I'm hoping it's going to start next year. And it's a technical stretch for you, or are you going to be master of uh, the digital humanities? That well, um, it hasn't. I, I've been to a few digital humanities training events over the summer, and um, I'm very far from mastering that so far. But we'll see. We'll see if that comes to, to pass. I don't know. It is a big stretch for me, but luckily also we have a fantastic colleague in Mark Sweetenham, who is a digital humanities expert and he has offered to help. So we'll Definitely. see how that goes. 
Exactly, and the, and the hub's own digital humanity. Yeah, that's true, actually. It was, yeah. it was great with, with help with these things because uh, I'm sure that the results that can be produced from that kind of mapping enterprise, I mean, we've talked before about even just taking the Strand itself in London, uh, you know, as a, an environment that needs to be mapped in literary terms. Mm. Uh, they do produce quite surprising versions of cities, bits of cities. Um, I want to go to uh, probably... Uh, Maybe not the final question. Uh, Dawn Seymour Close and Dawn, um, who's been involved in our public sphere podcast series, um, <laughs> is, uh, which has done a little bit of mapping in of medieval Dublin in the first oh, episode. Wow. Uh, Dawn says, um, do you find some of the popular media adaptations, particularly current ones, such as the most recent season of Riverdale, uh, which he says helpfully is on Netflix, uh, to be a helpful analysis of 19th and 20th century crime fiction. You're on your own with that one. I have not seen Riverdale, um, but is there a, I suppose, is there a, a new new life in a way to this genre because of streaming platforms? Mm. And perhaps other things like fan fiction, Claire, that mm. have, have stretched out the genre again for a, a very contemporary audience. I think that's true. I haven't actually I saw the first season of Riverdale and I gave up after that so I, I'm not really sure what the connection is um, to detectives in terms of that but I do think there's such a huge appetite at the moment with new forms of media like podcasting and with streaming services like Netflix which has realized I think that the true crime is an absolute banker for them that it's it's making people interested, I think, in this um, this genre in slightly different ways, maybe than before. Um, one of the things that I've noticed recently with true crime is that it's taken a turn towards a focus on the victims, which is, I think, an important re readjustment of the way in which we think about serial killers and so on, and is part of the work of feminist scholars and filmmakers and documentarians who are starting to think about the, the, the implications of, of crime in, in slightly different ways. So that to me is, is fascinating also. Exactly, and it's something, I mean, sadly, we've, we've thought about just in the last couple of days with the re-excavation of the media history around the Peter Sutcliffe Yorkshire yeah, Ripper. Absolutely. It's also shown just how dramatic that change has been yeah. because of the work of, of feminist legislators and uh, interveners who have said this is not how you know you introduce the public to um to crimes of this nature um with the sensationalism with the misogyny uh, embedded in it so uh i think that that's a tremendously um encouraging but also a very interesting turn and, and thanks dawn for for touching on that and she's followed up with uh um obviously a fan dawn um with uh, <laughs> some other things about sherlock and agatha christie's Locked Door series. Briefly, um, from Ellie Payne, because Ellie's touching on what we've been talking about, uh, which is the um, the publication platform for, for the home stories, the Strand itself. Um, subscriptions, and Ellie, I should background this, is a, a media historian. So oh, okay. subscriptions to the Strand fell off when Holmes was killed off, or maybe that's just a myth. Can you talk a bit about the place of the Sherlock Holmes stories in the development of the late 19th century press? Great question there from Ellie. Yeah, that is a great question. I mean, I think like that it's true to say that subscriptions to the Strand fell after the Holmes stories ended. And um, 
the biographers are of, of Doyle are fond of saying that, that, you know, clerks around London wore black armbands. I found absolutely no evidence of that, but I do know that people did write to George Nunes of the Strand and to Doyle to complain about the fact that Holmes was, uh, that Holmes had been killed off. And the Strand, I think, and that this is one of the things I think that underpins this latest book of mine, was the anxiety that publishers felt, the Strand in particular, to fill that void that was left by Sherlock because he had been so central to the success of that publication over the last couple of years in terms of them having to increase print runs. Um, Reginald Pines talks about them having to open the doors of subscription libraries uh, earlier on a Thursday, the last Thursday of the month, which was when The Strand was published. So all of these things, you know, speak to it being hugely successful. And obviously they were very worried when um, Doyle decided to kill off Holmes. And I think that's why they, they really clamoured in the Strand to find somebody to immediately fill the place. Um, and they, they used LT Mead and Arthur Morrison both to, you know, to have detective series that were ready to go for the following month, essentially. But then all these other um, competing magazines like Pearson's and the Ludgate and so on that wouldn't have been as famous also saw it as an opportunity to perhaps have their own detective who would end up being as famous as Holmes. It didn't really work, but, um, you know, they they tried and it produced this, this fantastic range of characters because everybody wanted to create a, a detective, but not somebody who was just exactly like a clone of Holmes. So because of that, then you get this tremendous range of uh, different types of detectives from, you know, a gypsy who works in a pawn shop to um, an aristocratic ghost hunter. Exactly, exactly. The full reach of them. I'm <laughs> going to, well, I'm going to just deviate a little bit because the questions come in from Chrissy Poulter and Chrissy says she hopes this isn't uh, flippant, but the question is simply cats, question mark. Uh, she's spotted the Sheila and the Gig cat behind you, Claire, and the brilliant pink one stalking across your shoulder. Uh, and she's asked, uh, Chrissy says, do detectives have pets? But I'm going to jump in there and partly answer that, Chrissy, because uh, I, I fully appreciate this. But if you read the acknowledgements uh, at the beginning of Claire's book, <laughs> that her two cats are given uh, due credit for their help and assistance in the writing of, uh, of this book. Um, but uh, cats do loom large in your life, Claire. Are they a feature in, uh, in the detective world? Do you know what? I, I can't think of anybody. Maybe Daryl could help me there. I'm, I can't think of any that have pets. I think that would play into that idea of them having no, no ties whatsoever, that they're not emotionally attached to a pet. I do. There's, there's a master criminal, actually, a kind of post-Moriarty master criminal called Dr. Nicola, who has a black cat called Apollyon, who sits on his shoulder and kind of in some way, I think it's suggested that Apollyon actually, you know, is kind of dictating what's going on. Um, so that's that's the only person I can think of, actually. My, I was hoping my own cats would put in an appearance, but they there was some meowing. But apart from that, I haven't seen them <laughs> for this hour. I think that's because Peter Peter keeps uh, cat treats upstairs uh, in his office. So yeah, we well, hang we out there. 
But our regular hug, hub, hub research coffee mornings, we do do spot the pet in the background. So uh, the questions are, um, David O'Shaughnessy is pointing out the famous five has a dog called Timmy. Uh, David, that's just a sad observation. I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> David, for the children's literature. Poor David. And uh, with questions flooding in now, um, but I'm, I'm going to finish where I wanted to come back to um, Claire and perhaps Daryl might comment on this as well, because I think we've talked a bit about you know, your route in this territory um, to Trinity and to these uh, wonderful publications. And again, congratulations again on, on uh, this latest one. Um, but are you beginning to feel, and this is particularly for the two of you, because I know that you and Daryl are part of the team that has just launched a new master's program in modern and contemporary literature in Trinity. I'm really excited to see it. Are you beginning to feel that the label of popular has become a straitjacket, has become a problem, or is it still working for you? And I suppose I'm also asking, has popular become classic? I'm okay with popular as a label. I'm I'm very happy still to embrace that uh, as a as a descriptor for what we do. I, I can't speak for Daryl, obviously, but uh, one of the the fantastic things I think about this new masters that we've put on and there are a lot of masters across the UK and Ireland in modern and contemporary literature is that but the difference with ours is that we have been able to really embed popular literature on popular genres and forms within this masters so they sit cheek by jowl with T.S. Eliot and Joyce and all of those people you would expect to see very highbrow figures but we also have graphic novels and we have Sherlock Holmes and and um, we have horror stories so uh, I, I think that's a, a unique selling point that we have at Trinity and one that we should feel uh, proud of I, I certainly do. Excellent well you, you put it absolutely beautifully Claire and, and popular lives on as, as a category and a, and a badge of honour for the School of English and, and its company of, of researchers in this field in in trinity and it's uh, it's really wonderful to see that um we're, we're coming up to the top of the hour and uh, i'm sure claire would like to go and get some lunch but uh, <laughs> i want to close by uh, thanking everyone who's joined us and particularly for some great questions i'm sorry we didn't get all of them um but uh, it's great to have everyone with us for this faculty in focus daryl thank you so much for reading let's have more it's so lovely uh, it's so enjoyable just to be read to, and, and particularly with um, texts that are genuine stories like this, full of melodrama and excitement and intrigue. So thank you for giving up your time and uh, giving us that reading today. Uh, Francesca and Aoife, as always, our terrific team at the Hub, thank you for setting this up. But Claire, most of all to you, thank you very much for coming in to talk to us. I hope you'll come back in when the mapping project on Holmes's London is at a, a further stage and, and talk to us about how you're getting on with the uh, the digital work in particular, but also where it's taking you and, and if it's, uh, you know, this collaboration with uh, your, your postgraduate is working out for you. And we wish you the best of luck with that. Many congratulations on what I'm sure will be yet another prize winning book um, on uh, British detective fi fiction and the successes to Sherlock Holmes. 
and uh, best of luck with your return to online teaching, which you now have to go back to. Thank you, everyone, <laughs> very much for listening and for joining us. And uh, please now. That was a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping governance towards the history of the Time of the Year Library. As well as being heard. The hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Corrid Sands. The hub is about impact. The hub is for everyone. The rise of feminism. Here's to the next 10 years.